On this episode, we will go over trusts and estate planning with guest Katie Nentwick. We're going to first go into what is a revocable trust. Secondly, when do you need an irrevocable trust and what that is? And lastly, what types of trust you should avoid? Some of the scams and things like that that are out there. As always, if this episode helps you or brings you value in any way, please do me a favor, share it with a friend. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Build Your Wealth Muscle, a podcast dedicated to helping fitness entrepreneurs build wealth by saving taxes and growing their money. Each episode will break down different strategies in the areas of business, tax, and retirement planning specifically for your coaching business. Disclaimer, the topics covered in this podcast are for educational purposes only. This is not advice for your specific situation. Please consult a qualified financial or tax professional before making any changes to your financial or tax situation. Now here's your host, certified financial planner and tax advisor, Pat Darby. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 79 of Build Your Wealth Muscle. For those of you who are new to listening, welcome. There's two show formats. The first is a solo episode where it's just me talking about tax, le- or not legal. Uh, our guess is that legal, let me think of it. Um, tax, wealth planning, things like that, specific steps that you can go into. Um, but today we have our guest episode, first time in person. So if there's echo, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> We've been trying so hard. <laughs> but we have legal expert Katie Netwick with us today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Abs- great. Well, so for people that don't know, we wasted about 40 or 50 minutes <laughs> trying to get the tech to work for an in-person. So At 6 a.m. <laughs> 6 a.m. here in Phoenix. Um, but tell listeners about who you are, what you do. Sure. So Katie Nentwick, I've been an attorney for eight years, um, also in finance, which is um, how Pat and I connected. So I was a financial advisor for 13 years. Um, So pretty similar backgrounds, but now I just focus on business tax and estate planning for clients all over the country. Awesome. So you have your own firm? Yes. Yeah. So I actually started my own firm last month, um, Nentwick Legal Services. I've actually had my own firm for since 2016. Um, but I officially am a hundred percent solo now. So, um, it's great. I have, uh, another attorney that's, um, of counsel with me and a couple paralegals that, uh, that assist me. So, um, it's a good team, all women team. So really, really thankful for that. Um, happy to be able to make that happen and excited to really go full steam in this new venture. That's awesome. So, Tell us, we're going to really focus today on the legal, see what people don't know that's really cool about Katie, or maybe they do know, but um, when you go see an estate attorney, how many of them really know the tax side of it too? It depends. Like if you go to a really high end estate planning attorney, um, they'll know a lot about gifting and um, estate tax and things like that. Um, But usually just the people that are doing like regular revocable living trusts or something, that's usually not the case. Um, They'll know the asset transfer rules. um, But I've seen a lot of attorneys. And in fact, the reason why I became an attorney was because the intersection between law and finance is um, extensive. And I was finding that 
financial advisors were fumbling on the legal side and attorneys were fumbling on the financial side. So I was like, man, there's, there's definitely um, a niche here. So I try as best I can to fill that niche. That's, that's really helpful because I think that as a financial planner, it's hard sometimes because the, the tax component becomes the, the ground in the middle or like the gap where it becomes tough. Because I've said to people before, like, well, this is what you need to do. Like you need an, a trust that will let this person control it, but not take away their ability for like a step up in basis. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll be like, I don't know how to make that legally doable, but talk to your lawyer, but yeah. they better know the tax side of it because if you lose that step up, then the whole thing was for not. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that bridge is super valuable that you know both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you find it a lot with retirement accounts and things, um, especially with older trusts now. You know, almost everyone knows what like a quote unquote see through provision is um, in a revocable living trust. But basically, what that is, is um, it tells the IRS, see through this trust and don't consider it an entity that I've given my my retirement funds to, but look at the individuals. Um, and that kind of determines how, how long someone has to take money out and things. But that one was a huge source of fumbling. And um, some of the questions that you sent me ahead of time, uh, I'll, I'll tell you some, some horror stories about uh, ways people have kind of messed that one up. But. So we're going we're gonna to dive into a few things that hopefully will be very helpful for everyone. But we're not going to start at the very beginning on what estate planning is because we I've done some solos on that. So most recently, episode 76, guys, like if you want to know like why you do estate planning in general, like the basic, the basic concept I'll let Katie explain is more or less to avoid probate. So I'll let you give a quick rundown, then everyone can, uh, then we can go into the specific stuff that I think you have the amazing expertise on. Yeah. So avoiding probate is obviously the number one concern. And <laughs> sometimes I get people that say, well, I'm dead. I don't care about whether <laughs> I go through probate. I'm like, you may not, but the people that are trying to grieve certainly do. Um, but, you know, a full a full estate plan should be not only, you know, avoiding probate, but also planning for incapacity. That's, that's a huge thing that people don't typically think about. Um, so your revocable living trust um, plans for capacity plans for incapacity, your powers of attorney, um, all of that. So, and a lot of people, they're like, well, I don't have a lot of assets. I don't, I don't need to have a revocable living trust, um, or an estate plan in general. And I'm like, do you have kids? <laughs> Most of the time? Yes. Then you need an estate plan. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's not just about avoiding probate, you know, a simple will will appoint a guardian for your children. And that could be a huge source of strife and, in a family at um, a very difficult time if you don't plan for that. Um, I've seen families be ripped apart, just sort of fighting over who gets the kids and you know, one grandparent wants them and people come out of the woodwork when there's money involved. So um, I think just setting everything out ahead of time, um, really what you want, gives you an opportunity to love your family <laughs> um, you know, instead of pulling them apart at a time when uh, like I said, is very emotionally difficult for them. One of the other things that I found doing financial planning is it also, if you're worried about the dollars, it's likely more expensive for a lawyer to walk you through probate than to spend the money while you're alive and tackle it. Absolutely. So um, every almost every jurisdiction has um, 
uh, mandated fees that people can't go over for probate, but there's also a floor to those fees. <laughs> I mean, people can obviously do it for free, but most attorneys go by, you know, whatever the court says, you know, this is what you charge for a probate case. And it's typically, you know, like up to 5%, almost none of them are 5% of the total estate, typically around 3%. Um, so if, if you haven't done any planning and all of your assets are passing, um, through your estate, in other words, all of your assets are in your name. So I want to be clear on probate versus non-probate assets, uh, cause I think that's a source of confusion. Everyone kind of assumes they all have to go through probate. Um, and also another, um, common misconception is if I have a will, I avoid probate. That couldn't be further from the truth. So um, probate versus non-probate assets. Probate assets are, are assets that are just in your name. So in your individual name that don't have a beneficiary designation on them, they don't have a joint tenancy on the title. Um, it's just in your name. Think bank accounts. That's the that's the most common one that people forget to sort of put in their trust or, you know, quote unquote, fund their trust. And we'll talk about that. Um, but Basically, anything that's in your individual name, it's going to have to go through probate if you don't have a, a trust um, and it doesn't pass via one of those things. Um, a will basically just says, I've named the executor and here's how I want the assets to pass. But the probate process has two prongs. One is you have a will and the other one is you don't. If you don't, which I'm sure Pat's talked about on prior podcasts, you're, you're what's called intestate. So the state basically makes a, a will for you. And it basically all your assets are just going to pass to your heirs, but still requires a full accounting of everything. Um, you're still subject to those to those court mandated probate fees. Um, <clears throat> if you if you do have a will and that's all you have, you don't have a trust. You still have to go through that process. You just have named the person that's going to go through that process for you, but you still have to provide an accounting to the court. You still have to go through the full probate process, depending on how much um, in assets that you have. Most states have. Um, a waiver of probate or a um, augmented probate for smaller estates. But again, you're still going through probate. A properly drafted estate plan with a revocable living trust, um, basically your will is going to be what's called a pour-over will. Um, so if you have kids, it's going to name the guardian. But essentially the distribution provisions are just going to say, hey, executor, if I forgot to put anything in the trust, go grab it for me and put it in the trust. So it's going to pour over to that trust. That way you don't have to provide a full accounting of all of the assets. Most of the time it's just little stragglers. So things that let's say you had a partnership interest that you forgot to put in the name of your trust or um, a bank account, like I said. So, you know, if you have like a shopping bank account that your spouse isn't on or something, that's a really common one people forget about. But those, those would be the, you know, probate assets. So the goal is when you do your estate plan, Focus <laughs> focus on everything that is in your name that doesn't have a beneficiary designation on and get that in the trust. And, you know, putting something in the trust or funding the trust is a little bit confusing for people. But essentially all it is, is it's not like you take an asset and you you just go put it <laughs> put it in something. It's, it's typically titling it um, in the name of the trust or, you know, beneficiary designations or transfer on death designations. There's a number of ways to do it, but it's just getting it to where the trust has the beneficial interest or the trustee does. So I think for the people listening, I probably forgot to ask this in the beginning. What is the difference between a revocable trust and an irrevocable trust that people don't know? And then 
I've said a follow-up, but you got I'll let you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a revocable trust, you have control over that. So it's it's all about control. In an irrevocable trust and, and ownership, um, in an irrevocable trust, you're giving up control and ownership. So, um, you know, I've seen cases where someone has an irrevocable trust and they still very much have control over the trustee um, and they have a beneficial interest in the trust asset still. So there was just recently a case where um, uh, a guy owned an apartment building. Um, he was <laughs> he was defrauding people and um, he rented out the bottom floor of the apartment building. <clears throat> His sister was the trustee over the trust. Um, he didn't violate any, any fraudulent transfer rules because he already had this this trust set up, but he relinquished his um, uh, uh, he had another trustee, but he basically uh, put his put his sister as the new trustee because he knew that he could control her more. And he was charging rent to all the tenants, but he wasn't paying rent. Um, and there were several little like incidents of ownership and 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 benefit to him. And the tax court said, this is not an irrevocable trust. Um, you have full control over this. And so they, they kind of, they threw it out. It was, um, it just came out. I can't even think of the name of it right now, but, um, giving up control is, is, is at the core of an irrevocable trust and people do it for a number of reasons. Um, you know, ranging from asset protection planning. So let's say if someone has a high risk business or, um, quite a number of assets and there's potential creditors, they'll do asset protection planning where, you know, they they move their assets into an irrevocable trust, but they are the, you know, beneficial, um, they, they do have some beneficial control. So Nevada, actually where Pat's from, has one of the best um, irrevocable asset protection planning trusts. So um, people choose different domiciles for that. You know, I'm sure you've talked about offshore trusts and things. Um, that's a form of irrevocable trust. Um some people do irrevocable trusts for estate planning purposes, so um, uh, irrevocable life insurance trusts. Some people do that depending on if they have um, a child that you know maybe has special needs or something. People do islets for that, or if they have um, estate tax liability, so their total estate is greater than twenty six million. Um, people also do irrevocable trusts for Medicaid uh, planning, um, but basically you're just removing the control and ownership um, from yourself and putting it in into the trustee's hands. So super long winded answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was awesome because it made me think of something that wasn't on my list of questions because I wanted to talk about this, but I am not the expert. What what is some trust planning that's out there that's bullshit that people should not get duped into like, I don't know, like those speaker conventions where yeah. people are like buy this $10,000 trust, which one should people be like, huge red flag? Um, land trusts are one that I, I am not a fan of. Um, so land trusts are a way that people get their names off of deeds. So people that are, um, you know, have extensive rental portfolios, or even, you know, some people that are really paranoid, and they have like one rental, but they're like, I don't want my name on anything. You know, as an attorney, I can set up their LLC, um, or, you know, most of the time it's going to be an LLC if they're renting something out. Some people just, excuse me, just put the property in a trust. Um, but I can set up their LLC, for example, and have, you know, quite a bit of privacy depending on the jurisdiction. 
um, to where you know I can use a reg corporate registered agent, I can use a mail forwarding address, um, I can potentially act as organizer for the entity, and it doesn't. No one can tell from the Secretary of State standpoint who owns this entity. But if you own land that is now owned by the trust, you're still going to sign that deed. You're going to sign that deed in multiple spots as the grantor, as the grantee, um, as the beneficial landowner. So if someone really wants to find out who owns a property, they're just going to go to the county deeds, right? But a land trust is a way that people have, um, is a device people have used to get their names off deeds. So here's what happens. You create this land trust, you deed the property into the, into the land trust. Um, the trustee of that land trust is not you, it's someone else so that they don't have to sign the, so you don't have to sign the deed, they're signing the deed. But what happens is, um, it, it's great because then, you know, you put it in this land trust, then they can deed it into an LLC, which is great. But then when you go to sell the property, what, what happens is after they sign the deed, they relinquish their right as trustee and they make the person that actually owns the property trustee again. Well, the problem is that's never recorded by a title agency. So there's no there's no record of that occurring um, in the chain of title. So you'll hear, you know, chain of title uh, when it comes to, to property. So if it's just an internal document and they're relinquishing ownership of this um, or, you know, trusteeship, and now you take over and there's no record of that, the title company wants the trustee that signed the deed to sign off on it if you're selling it. If that person's no longer around, they may not accept your internal document that says, oh, this other trustee that signed it initially has, has you know, resigned. So it causes chain of title issues on the back end. Um, and I personally don't do them for that reason. Um, I haven't found a, a great way. There's some states that have like, um, uh, oh, Ohio is one of them. I'm an Ohio attorney. Um, but they have um, sort of like a, a family office type LLC where you can appoint um, an LLC that's potentially controlled by, you know, your financial advisor or something or um, a, another family member uh, to take title for you. And that way you don't have to sign off. That other family member can can be the signatory um, on the deed. So, but there's a lot of hoops to jump through with that. So the I think privacy is where um, people kind of get sold a bill of goods it's really difficult and potentially very expensive to have full privacy uh, when it comes to land transfers. So that would be the number one thing. Uh, I'm not not a big, I get it all the time too, not a big fan of, of the land trust. But other than that, I mean, you know, asset protection plans or asset protection trusts are sold quite a bit. Um, the problem is it's not that they're that they're not good. It's that people don't spend the time or money to fund them. Or to manage them properly, so they paid you know ten fifteen thousand dollars for for this vehicle that they're not even using. It's yeah, they're they're paying for a Ferrari that doesn't work. That's so. There's two questions that made me think of there. For irrevocable trust, is there ever a scenario where you can get the assets back? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, or you know, let's say you don't like the terms of an irrevocable trust and you want to change them. Most of the time, you know, if you're working with a good attorney, they're going to tell you, hey, this is irrevocable. <laughs> it's, there's going to be major tax consequences if you, if you, you know, basically cancel this trust, um, especially if an asset has, has increased in value. So they're 
they're pretty um, diligent about making sure that you understand that this is irrevocable. But let's say you know you had certain terms in your in your irrevocable trust that you want to change because you know let's say you did it when you're 30 and now you're 60 and life is very different. You can what's you can do what's called decanting. So you can basically take uh, one trust and dump the contents into another trust that has a little bit different provisions. So that's more common than than just getting rid of the irrevocable trust. Okay. And then with a revocable trust, I forgot the second question I had before, so I'll go to back to the question list. Um, I'll probably think of it while you're talking. But so now we're going back to revocable trust because most people are doing revocable trusts. And so for people who aren't aware, like that's that's what most people listening, that's what your parents probably did. That's probably what you're looking to do with an attorney. So the question of, oh, this is what I was going to ask because you, you brought it up before about these are vehicles. So if you build a trust and then don't retitle your assets, your trust essentially does nothing for you. So when you're funding the trust and putting the assets in a name, one thing that I feel like I'm sort of 50-50 on, how do you feel about people making the retirement accounts, the beneficiary being the trust? Um, I think it's fine. So I kind of referenced at the beginning the see-through provision. Most attorneys at this point, you know, unless they're using templates from you know, 1990 or something, they have what's called a see-through provision in there. And it's telling me, it's it's citing IRS code saying, you know, see through this trust um, and look to the to the actual living beneficiaries. This is really important if you have a uh, a non-living beneficiary. So a, a charity is the most common example. Um, and also the way that it is passed, whether it's a conduit or accumulation trust matters and talk to your estate planning attorney about that. Um, but I think it's fine, um, especially if you are not married. So if you're married, you always want your spouse and, you know, in, in 99% of the cases, you want your spouse to be the primary beneficiary of that, uh, retirement account. So just name them outright. But if you're in a common accident with your spouse, you need to have a backup. And I think that backup should almost always be the revocable living trust with a see-through provision. Um, you know, when you're, when you're funding a trust, um, you, most of the time you're changing title, but sometimes it is just beneficiary designations and IRA and, you know, retirement plan is not something that you can change title to. So you can't change ownership of that plan, um, to a trust, but you can make the beneficiary the trust. So, um, there's recently been, um, clarification from the IRS on, uh, distribution rules as well. So going back to the spousal distribution rules, a spouse can, they have special, um, privileges when it comes to retirement accounts. They can basically take it over as their own. And then they're subject to the requirement of distribution rules, you know, whenever they hit 73 or 75, um, everyone else they're called, you know, um, non, I'll just call them non-spouse beneficiaries. They're subject to this 10 year distribution rule. Um, unless there's certain situations like they are, you know, an individual that's 10 years younger than you or, um, other like minors or something. Um, the 10 year distribution rule was recently clarified. A lot of people thought that when you inherit a retirement account, um, you have 10 years to distribute it. So they would kind of to keep the tax deferral, wait 10 years, and then just distribute all of it. And the IRS is like, no, 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 no. 
we want a little bit every single year. So that just came out in Secure Act 2.0, but it was kind of, you know, in the legal community and in the finance community, people uh, were like, maybe we're not thinking about this correctly. So um, any non-spouse beneficiaries, even if they're, even if it's a, a trust, they're still subject to that 10-year rule. Is that 10-year rule for pre-tax and post-tax accounts? It has to be incremental each year? It is, yeah. yeah. So un- unfortunately, a lot of people are like, this is Roth. I, you know, I, should, I shouldn't be subject to this. Uh, but if you're inheriting um, a, ben- a uh, retirement account and you're a non-spouse beneficiary, it's still 10 years, unfortunately. So what would be – so in that scenario, you're saying like if you have minor beneficiaries – Leave, in that scenario, you would leave everything inside the trust. That way, the the trustees that are taking over the minor children would be taken care of. Yeah. So minors actually can't technically, um, and so they're not subject to the ten year rule uh, until until they're eighteen. So um, the guardian that's named in the will most of the time is the person that's going to be um, controlling their account or for their benefit. Um, if you don't have a guardian or the guardian is passive named in your will, uh, you know, it'll have to be court appointed most of the time. What happens? I'm not sure you know the answer to this, but what happens in, I'm, it might Probably even not. change from state. <laughs> it might change from state to state. What happens in the interim period to children when there is no guardianship in place? Like if a scenario where there's living grandparents, living you know, siblings of the deceased. Someone had told me before that the children become property of the state while the court figures out who's getting the kids. Is that true? It depends. But most of the time, kind of. Um, typically, it's it's a fairly quick process. Um, and just to name an interim guardian, it's a longer process to name an actual legal guardian. Um, but the interim typically is just next of kin is what is what most courts prefer. And keeping the kid in, in the school that they're used to and things like that. So um, I'm glad you brought this up. So I, I work with a lot of uh, folks that um, maybe they came to the U.S. for school and their family is mostly international. And so they'll they'll name international guardians. And I always caution um, people when doing that. I typically have them name a, a U.S.-based guardian as an interim guardian or as the primary guardian, and then I have a backup that is the international. So that way, it gives them time. Um, and then, you know, eventually, because there's immigration issues and all that, um, if the kid's going to be uh, redomiciled or, or sent international, um, it's a long process. So I'll have the U.S.-based guardian take interim guardianship, and then when all the immigration stuff is figured out, they'll relinquish their guardianship and give it to the international guardian. But um, lots of red tape with that one. So let's shift to the business side of estate planning. What is what is the best legal structure for the majority of people to consider so they can give their kids their business? Or if someone's listening in the younger dem- demographic, if your parents are trying to sell you their business or gift it to you, what's the legal strategy for that? Oh man, it really, really depends. <laughs> um, I, a lot of these questions are. It depends on on your particular situation. Um, you know, a really, really easy one and the most, the lowest hanging fruit is change the ownership of your business to your trust, and then give the kid the business that way. So um, that way, they're going to get the step up in basis. <laughs> so um, some people, you know, will gift units. 
um, maintain beneficial control of the business and then just gift small units. So some people use their their annual exclusion um, or you know free gift every year, so sixteen grand a year, um, to just gift very small units of the business um, so that the kid has some ownership. Um, you know, maybe change the operating agreement or something like that, or um, just have a kid on the board. But it, it depends. I mean, I I'm a big fan of of just giving the business at death, so you get the step up in basis. Um, but it it depends. Some people, you know, they'll they'll change ownership via a internal member transfer agreement, or they'll gift um, stock certificates to the child. So that's like the nuts and bolts of, of how it happens. But whether you give it to them during life or at death, um, definitely work with a good estate planning attorney um, and a good business and tax attorney, because that is a strategy that's highly dependent on your tax situation, your overall net worth, value of the business, whether it's going to be sold or potentially sold. So uh, yeah, sorry, but it's, it depends attorney answer. No, that's that's really helpful for people to at least get that start to like which way to start looking. Um, well, this has been awesome. I could go all day asking estate planning questions. So tell everyone again about your firm, how they can find you on social media, sure. the services you provide. Yeah. So um, my firm is Nentwick Legal Services. Um, we do, I mean, basically any, you know, business tax, estate planning um, work. Um, and you can find me on social at ktsue22. I'm friends with Pat. So just looking Pat's following <laughs> or followed. Um, and my website is uh, nentwicklegal.com. So feel free. Um, you know, I have a 15 minute free consultation. So if you want to just kind of um, test the waters or, you know, give me your fact pattern and um, ask me some basic questions, feel free, schedule a time. Um, if you know what you want, I also have services on there that you can sign up for an hour of my time with, uh, for an entity, hour and a half for basic estate plan. Um, but I think it's always helpful just starting with that 15 minute conversation to get to know one another um, to see whether I can help you or not. So Awesome. Hey guys, give her a follow and thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us this week on Build Your Wealth Muscle. The links mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes. For video clips and more information on tax and retirement strategies for fitness entrepreneurs, please follow my Instagram at the Pat Darby. If you found value in this episode, please do us a favor and share with a friend. If you tag me, that'd be appreciated also. Lastly, for help implementing any of the topics discussed, please book a call. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.